Do you want to open it? A little anticlimactic, but whatever. Welcome to Scores and Boards, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. On today's episode, we're going to find out what did composers like to drink? Mm. Aw diggity. If you like the show, please consider making a financial contribution. Help us out a little. We would love to have your support. Podcast is not free. It's not free. If you go to patreon.com slash scores and pours, there's a few different tiers you can select. And in some cases, you'll get free merchandise. In all cases, you'll get free content. So check us out, patreon.com slash scores and pours. And thank you to our existing patrons. We could not do this without you. On that same Patreon page, there's a link to merchandise. So if you'd like to sport some scores and pours, hoodies, tees, etc., that's the place to go. And thanks to our existing patrons. We couldn't do this without you. What's up, Ms. Emily Reese? What's up, Jill Mott? Nothing, except for the fact that I almost just spit water all over the all studio? of our studio equipment, yeah. <laughs> which was not cool. <laughs> I was in, I guess, in Emily's defense, because she made me laugh, <laughs> I was singing a Stevie Winwood song, and I didn't think that anybody knew the words to Stevie Winwood songs. And then she started singing the words to Stevie Winwood song. And then we just started laughing and I had just taken a huge swig of water and I almost ruined all of her studio equipment. Valerie call on me. Valerie. Yeah. Okay. No call anyway. wait on me. Yeah. Come and see, see me. I'm the same boy I used to be. Boop. Okay, anyway. Yeah, and so, we have missed our calling. And that all stemmed from me being like, I saw these M&M cookies in our studio kitchen that we I used to be a cigarette sting person back when I was like in my <laughs> late teens. And I used to always, like every week, get a super mom cookie. And so I saw them and I was like, hmm. I need a part of a super mom's cookie Yeah, with M&M's. And then I ate them, and I feel like I'm going to taste that for like four years. You won't, but I still think they're delicious, even though you got like a really disgusted look on your face. I was like, I couldn't believe I ate these every week. Well, a whatever. Lot of people I do. mean, they're fine. They, I think it, I thought it was quite delicious. Okay, well, let's just drink wine right now. Let's okay. get that taste out of our mouth. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, this one's um, this one was interesting. I had to. And I, I don't mean this in a negative way, but I had to wait on you to determine which wines you wanted to, which composers' wines, you know. So you had to, like, take it on yourself to, like, figure out which composers even had information out there about which wines they drank and then let me know what music to pick. So it was a little bit of a different process this weekend. It was fun. It was really fun to see how deep I could get with this, and it didn't end up becoming too deep because there's not a lot of, you know, there are biographies written on myriad composers, right? But when you get deep into like their culinary, their eating habits and their drinking habits, um, it's it, that's where it takes uh, a really skilled biographer or someone that's really into the composer at on a level that's not just their music and their genius, right? Yeah. And that that's really hard to find. So in this case, we do have some greats. 
We have, you know, List, I would say he's a great that everyone has heard, a lot of people have heard of, but he's not Beethoven, where like, mm. uh, you know, my mm-hmm. brother doesn't know who List is. I didn't my, even know List was on the list, and I'm not even trying to be funny. He's in my mind. Okay. We'll just talk about him for yeah, two seconds. That's awesome. But like my my brother doesn't know List, but my brother knows Beethoven kind of thing. Sure, right? so, for sure. Yep. Mm, but it was really fun to research, and I knew a couple of them before, you know, sitting down today. But this this wine that we're going to drink is of Austrian origin. Neat. Really cool stuff. Okay. Let's take a little sip. Yes. And talk about what it looks like and tastes like before we dig into actually what it is. I mean, it looks like a pear. It looks Whoa. like the inside of a bruised pear. That's what it looks like to me. Mm-hmm. It's like... It's a little yellow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Go- like... Uh, like Goldilocks blonde kind of. How about it looks like strong. yellow pear skin? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cloudy. It's not filtered. Correct. I'm like, and you're correct. <laughs> Thank you. It smells, uh, this is one of my favorite white wine smells, is when it's kind of rocky and minerally and cl- like, it's a very clean and crisp smell to me. Mm-hmm. I love that. It smells to me a little bit like if you were to sever a tree branch, like a, yeah. a, a living tree branch, not yeah, one that yeah, yeah. fell off. And it's kind of got that green smell. Yeah. Not woody, not no, oaky I know in exactly the least, what you're but like about fresh that. wood. Yeah, you know? yeah. Even though this isn't, this is done in old oak, okay. but that influences not in the least. I smell no oak on this wine. Yeah. Whoa. Unexpected. Whoa is right. A little bitter. Uh-huh. A little floral, but then all of a sudden, all kinds of minerals. Lemony. Really lemony. Yeah, yeah. lemon-like acidity, too. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, definitely, like, really, really, dr- like, dry. Yeah. And I don't say really dry like it's drier than other wines, but there's no extract here. Like, it's not a rich wine at all. Medium Yum. body, super fun. Nice surprise. Should, should I tell you why I chose this? Yeah, please. I would, yes, that, yes. I chose this because Beethoven... Loved wines from Austria. And even though he was born in southwestern Germany uh-huh. and he loved wines from the Rhine, he also loved red wines from that area. And I say love maybe a little bit with a little bit too much gumption because there are many letters where he talks about like drink, but not a lot that he talks about specific wines. However, there is a letter to a cellist. His name was Nikolaus Zemskal. And that letter says, let us meet at seven this evening at the Schwan and drink more of their disgusting red wine. (laughs) (laughs) And and we know that the Schwan is actually still in existence. It's a restaurant that's been in existence since 1398 or something like that. Wow. It's called the Zoom Weissen Schwan. So he just shortened that up, Schwan. And that's in the Baden and Württemberg area. So when he says they're disgusting red wine, nowadays, reds from the Baden at Württemberg, they're usually Spätburgunder, Pinot Noir. They can be a few other red varietals there, but it's not a really well-known area outside of the wine community. You know, you don't have people coming and being like, can I get a Cabernet and can I please get a Baden-Württemberg red? You know, (laughs) but... Probably back in those days, it was like a hodgepodge of red grapes in a vineyard. Okay, yeah, sure. And probably not too tasty. 
because <laughs> they didn't have the technologies that we have now mm -hmm. in the 17 and 1800s when Beethoven was living. Yeah. We know that he drank red wine, probably local red wine in southern Germany. But then listeners are like, so why the hell are you guys drinking Austrian white <laughs> well, wine? Well, he lived in Austria for and, a while. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And so he probably drank in Vienna, which is where he passed away, right? I think he passed yeah. away in Vienna. A little bit of a love-hate there <clears throat> with Vienna for him. But yeah. yeah. So Vienna, on the outskirts of the city, depending on what area you're in, you can see vineyards. And vineyards, they are, there's a specific type of wine that is native to, or I should say is known in Vienna called Gemistersatz, which means a kind of like a mixed bag is what it means. Okay. And it's something that there's an, you know how there's an appellation for champagne? It needs to be this way. It needs to be that way. Yeah. Appellation rule book. A rule right? book. Yeah. Yep. In a place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gemistersatz has to be made from at least three varietals. <laughs> they have to be in the same vineyard. They have to be the whatever is the most prominent grape cannot be more than fifty percent, and whatever is the least prominent grape has to have no more than ten percent. And that's to say there are only three varietals because in some cases there are like fifteen varietals. And it all has to come from the same vineyard, so you can't be like, "Hey, my homie who is a vineyard own five miles away, can I have some of your converts to?" There may be a little bit of that, but in theory you can't, and because Austria okay. is one of the highest, like the highest governed. Wow. Like wine countries because yeah. of their scandal that they had in the 90s, which we can talk about that later. Okay. They call it the anti-freeze scandal. <laughs> anyway, super highly governed to make sure that there's no fraud. Those wines are what people drink in Vienna in a very specific style. So this wine is not from that area, but it is a Gemister Schatz, which I will, I will, I want to listen to some music. Okay. But I just wanted to get that bug in people's ear that, he loved Austrian whites, yeah. specifically wines likely from Vienna because people drank hyper-locally at the time. He did have money to afford other wines, and we know he was buying other wines, but by and large, if he's living in Vienna, he probably was drinking Gemistersatz or something like that at the time. Fun. And then we'll talk about why this Gemistersatz has that name on it and is not from that region <laughs> in mere moments. I love that. So I guess we should listen to some Beethoven. Yes, we should, please. I mean, that's always something that makes me pretty happy. Obviously, one of my favorite composers, Ludwig von Beethoven, born in 1770, died in 1827. On last week's episode, we heard a piece of Beethoven's uh, from his early period. Beethoven has three quite definable compositional periods, early, middle, late, right? You all be tested on this, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> And it's just kind of fun because last week's piece was from the very end of his early period. This week's piece comes from the very end of his middle period. So this is uh, right before he made some um, changes in the way he composed and had made changes from the way he composed the piece we heard last week. So this is a piano sonata of his, number 27. And it's unique in many ways. One thing that's interesting about it, it has only two movements. That's a little unusual for a sonata of some sort. And a sonata just means it's a solo for an instrument. So if it's a flute sonata, it would be a flute with a piano. But it's just a piano sonata, so it's just a piano by itself uh, with just two movements. The other interesting thing about it is he, instead of including his tempo instructions to the performer in Italian, 
he does it in German. So that marked a little bit of a shift. And in like how, with all of, like it wasn't just a tempo, it was like... An explanation. An explanation yep. is the name of the... Yeah, like songfully, but not too fast or slow. Or, and, yeah. And so in this case, I, I have it written down, not the German, because you all don't want to hear me speak German more than two words, and especially <laughs> wine terms. Like I can say Gemistersatz, yeah. but I can't say Nacht und... Yeah. All the things. Yeah. Not too swiftly and conveyed in a singing manner. Yes. That's what we're going to listen to. That's, that's what it's the called. <laughs> second mo- that's the yep. second movement. And I chose this second movement for a very specific reason, which we'll learn more about later. Uh, but for now, let's just listen to the second movement of the 27th Piano Sonata by Beethoven. It's a very beautiful piece. So here we go. Music geeks out there, written in E major and in a, like around 1814. So, minor. Well, number one was in E minor, but number mm-hmm. two was E major. Yes, but the name of the piano sonata is Piano Sonata Number 27 in E minor. So why do they do that? Why do they say <laughs> Why do they say sonata in E minor? Yet then the second movement, so half of the piece is in E major. Yes. Well, that's. Very astute of you to ask that, and I'm glad you did, because Beethoven uh, broke a lot of rules, a lot of conventions, I should say, not necessarily rules per se, but in a sonata, first of all, usually you'll have three movements, maybe four, and those would be expected to be certain tempos, mm-hmm. and the, those movements would expect would be expected to be in keys that relate to whatever key you started in. Sure. So if you start in F major... Your other keys or either your other movements will either be in F major or perhaps a relative minor of F major, so maybe D minor. Yep. Or They're maybe relate to it. Yep. Relate yep. to F major closely, meaning they share a lot of the same notes. That's what relatives do, mm-hmm. um, if not the same notes in in music. So Beethoven uh, didn't always conform to those rules, and this is a very good example of that. So the second movement should for all intents and purposes, either be in E minor also, or maybe in G major. A, a relative key of E minor. It, which would okay. be G major. Okay. Uh, but he said, but he said, he said, screw it. Nah, I like E. I'm going to stay in E. And that's what he did. And cool. what's interesting is, it, it's so, huh. so Beethoven was always... We just opened a box, people. Yeah, Get she ready. Did. Uh, I'll try and be brief, though. Beethoven was always trying to push the boundaries of uh, the piano that existed in his time. In his time, the piano did not go down to a low E. Now it goes down to a low A, below the E. Yeah. So are they? Do they, when when aren't they telling keyboardists now to actually go down below the F to make e, to it the sound? E. Or, yeah. But I mean, go beyond the F yes. to the E to finish a certain way. But some some. In uh, some piano instructors feel that that's the right thing to do. Gosh, I'd so be like, that's not the right thing to do <laughs> if that's not the I mean, way it finished. He, he but 
I mean, in those cases, I think there's strong evidence that Beethoven definitely would have had okay. he had the okay. ability to, because he was always trying go to. Go down, go down. Maybe yep. I'd say go down and <laughs> do it that way. Okay. So, yeah, so it's really interesting uh, that he, first of all, uh, chose that key, although, and this obviously could be a discussion in the, in the future, keys had very specific meanings. And uh, in Beethoven's time, that was very true as well. So E major would have meant something different to him than F major. So, yeah. Or okay. E minor, F minor, whichever it is. So uh, good observation, but it's just because he felt like it. You know what? And you're welcome. Because <laughs> you just got to talk about Beethoven for an extra seven minutes. That was amazing. Yes. I okay, let's it. listen to it. All right. again demonstrating the beautiful lyricism of Beethoven. And the pianist Richard Good, an Emily Reese favorite. A favorite, and it's really funny for this one, I listened to a lot of different pianists because some pianists play this a lot slower because even in his instructions, in his German instructions, as you said, it says, you know, don't play it too fast. Um, but convey it in a singing manner. Exactly, yeah. in a very flowing singing manner. And so it, it's kind of interesting in a case like this movement to go around and listen to other pianists and just hear what it sounds like when somebody plays it slower, you know. But um, he, but Richard Good and uh, most of the other recordings I listened to were kind of a more brisk, kind of flowing tempo like this. I love how pretty it is. The opening material comes back. This is called a rondo. It's actually a sonata rondo, but rondo means that we keep coming back to this opening material, and that's going to become important when we talk about that Schubert piece down the road, too. Which I'll make sure to do next so we have a nice comparison. Oh, beautiful. Back and forth. Yeah, that's that's great. So, yeah, Oh, I love it. This I would love to start my day, which I did today, actually, <laughs> with this piece. Um, yeah. it's It just sounds very true and very wholesome and in because it's in a major key it sounds very positive um mm -hmm. which is really nice yeah there's and some... just make it a nice afternoon too and drink some gemister shots you know what i'm saying let's do it <laughs> i just going. met everybody else but yeah. we can do <laughs> let's do it yeah so, so the reason that this is a gemister shots or it's called gemister shots yeah that's not from vienna is do you mind bringing up our wine map so you can see so Vienna is on the far, we're looking at the, actually, the Austrian wine website is an awesome website to go to for all kinds of information, wines from Austria. And of course they have a map and you can see there Vienna is in blue. All of the Austrian wine regions are focused 
and located in the far eastern part of Austria. So Vienna is, uh, you know, where the capital is and a smaller but beautiful region. This is made all the way down in Bergenland. And we're very close to, if you can see there where it says Middle Bergenland by Nudsiedlersee, a very famous region for sweet wines. This producer called Joseph. So they've been around since 2015, so a few years now. And they made this wine called Mischkultur, is what the wine is called, but then it's a Gemistersatz. And it is, they made about 1,500 liters of this, the first vintage, and very little more than that in, in subsequent vintages. And it is a blend from a couple different parcels. There are 20-year-old vines in here, and there are 100-year-old vines in here. <laughs> they farm and work with just about a hectare, maybe two hectares of wine. So the amount of wine they produce, or I should say of vines, yeah. the amount of wine they produce is like next to nothing. Wow. Yet there's some of the lithest in all of this area and all of, I guess, Austria together. Um, I've only had a few different cuvées from them. They're really hard to get in our market, but they're mm. just absolutely gorgeous. And in this area, so Bergenland is known for their soils, limestone and slate soils, which together can make wines that are really bright. We've talked about limestone being like, can provide wines with a lot of lift and acidity. Mm -hmm. And then slate soils can provide some lift, but also some angularity too. You find like wines from Northeastern Spain from Priorat have slate soils. And in a region that's warm and you could have crazy high alcohol wines, which you can still there, but the slate ends up bringing out this minerality and this attempt to create like a elevated palate that you may not get if you have a lot of clay soil, heavier soils, richer soils. And so in this bottle, we have Gruner Veltliner, one of the darling grapes of Austria. We have Welsh Riesling, looks like Welsh Riesling. Yeah. It's not Riesling. It's a different, it's a grape, different grape entirely. We have Terminer, hmm. which we've talked about on the show before, one of the oldest grapes that we have DNA testing yeah. on. There's Neuburger, a very classic grape that is, I think, only grown in Austria, as far as I know. And there's Muscateller in this wine as well. Muscateller got, you know, a lot of floral aromas to it. They're all fermented together. And they're aged together in oh. oak for just a short amount of time and then bottled and bottled unfiltered, which is just like super cool. I love that that they put that on the label because technically a lot of people would see Gemistersatz and they would assume right away it's from Vienna, yeah, which is where Gemistersatz is known as a DAC, okay. otherwise known as District Austriae Controllatus. Okay. That's their governing body. Okay. And they're like, no, this is from Bergenland, and hmm. it is a Gemistersatz. It is a Mischkultur. It's a, it's a mix of things, like, blended together and aged together and fermented together, but also the fact that it's made all with native yeasts and it's unfiltered and it is this mishmash of a field blend, basically. The reason why it was done that way is we've talked about field blends on the show before, it was an insurance policy. You know, you would plant different grapes so that every year, if it was a bad year for Gruner, it might be a good year for Muscateller. And if it's a, if all of a sudden, because they ripen at different times, right? And there's hail mm. that could, you know, kill off all of your Neuburger, but then you have X grape left. And so you have, every year you have this blend 
and you're always going to have wine, and it's likely always going to taste somewhat similar. And so Gemistershatz, just dope. It's so fun. I love this because I'd never given this a thought before. And I don't even know if you can answer this question, if this is an answerable question, but how often are blends blended after they've been fermented separately? Like it never even occurred to me that that would be a thing, but of course it is. So mm-hmm. you're, I mean, you're saying that like a trademark of Gemistershatz. What is it? Gemistershatz. Gemistershatz. Gemistersatz. Gemistersatz. A trademark of Gemistersatz. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> It's okay. You'll be doing it all. I'll do it. We'll do it the whole show. Keep going. The trademark of this wine is that it's all fermented together Mm -hmm. in one thing. And should normally the vines should be in the same. In Vienna, they have to be in the same vineyard. Right. Here, they're saying, listen, they're like in the all in the same village. Okay. So we're going to. So is that unusual for blends to be constructed, to be fermented together? Yes and no. It is rare in a conventional world where people are. You know, they have a huge winery and they have 100,000 acres. They're going to pick when things are at a certain ripeness level so that everything can be 15% alcohol or 13% alcohol or whatever. And they're likely going to ferment things separately so that they everything can be hyper-controlled and then they'll blend them at the end mm-hmm. when everything is either finished fermentation mm-hmm. and then they'll age them together. But a lot of times it's after aging that they're blended together. Now, in the natural wine world or people that are trying to subscribe to those methods as often as possible, it's kind of a mixed bag. Like some people are small enough that they can ferment them, you know, they can go pick them separately, Mm -hmm. but other people don't have the space. I mean, like imagine something that's like 20 times the size of our studio and that's Mm -hmm. what people have to ferment. They don't have 1,700 vessels to have the Cabernet there and the Merlot there. And the Sauvignon Blanc there. So they have to put them all together because they only can afford two tanks. It mostly came out of that before it came out of, like, this is a stylish thing to do to ferment them I together. See. It came out of a, you know, mm-hmm. a need for space okay, to do other things like wash your clothes and stuff. All right. So. Yeah. Yeah. But the, I, it's super fun wine. Let me fill you up here. Yeah, please. So knowing what this is, yeah. knowing that we're a little further south... We're in a bit more of a humid area with soils that aren't like they are further north, which are a lot of loose soils, a lot of nice or nice, G-N-E-I-S-S. Oh. Here, you know, having a lot of limestone and a lot of slate, like, I don't know, what do you think? It is delicious. Just screaming acidity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just makes me like, woo. Every time I take a drink, which I love. And obviously wines in Beethoven's time, even if they were a Gemister Satz or like wine, yeah, they probably wouldn't have been this clean. You know, I mean, this is, right. even though it's unfiltered and it's a little funky and they're not, they're using some sulfur, but not a ton of sulfur. It still wouldn't have probably been this. We have knowledge of yeasts. We have labs. Yeah. If we need to send stuff in to figure out if things are going wrong. Yeah. And they didn't have that during Beethoven's time. Right, so. right. The wine would have been maybe a little bit more mm-hmm. dank, <laughs> as it were. So. Amazing. Do you want me to talk just a quick little snippet about Schubert? Yeah, Before we do. get into the next, because then we can kind of back and forth. You can back and forth Schubert Beethoven. Yes. 
All right. So Beethoven, Vienna Whites, Tokai, he loved a sweet wine from Hungary, and German Rieslings. Be- Beethoven did? Yeah. Franz Schubert, who lived from 1797 to 1828, he loved a rosé called Schulscher. And I tried to get us some Schulscher today, but there have been like two in our market in huh. the 10 years I've been here. So <laughs> if you see the on our little Austrian map, yeah. the far lower like southwestern, yeah. the dark green area or the the medium green, that's Veststiermark. Oh, okay. Veststiermark is the region where the only region where Schilscher can be made. Schilscher needs to be made from a grape called Blauer Wildbacher. Okay. So you can't make a cool, cute rosé that is made from some other grape. Mm-hmm. It has to be Blauer Wildbacher, and. The skins, if you look at it online, they're like darker than Pinot Gris skins, but they're oh. kind of this like really dark purple, like onion skin of oh. like a like purple onion. Wow. So they almost look red, like a red wine, mm-hmm. but they are, they do have a little bit of like a just tinge of greenness to them. Okay. A lot of nice soils here, or nice soils, a lot of slate soils here as well. So we know he drank Schilscher. There's a letter that was written, and I'm going to quote the letter that refers to this wine and Schubert. Quote, After the weekend, Schubert and Jenger in the company of Anselm Hutenbrenner and the Pocklers made a three-day visit to the castle of Wildbach, some 20 miles southwest of Graz, which was managed by an aunt of Dr. Pockler, Anna Massig. Again, they made music, assisted by Massig's eldest daughter, in a beautiful blue room with fine views across the garden, and they were refreshed by generous supplies of the excellent local wine, the Schilscher, a light rosé which proved a particular favorite with Schubert. And it's cool that we have that documentation of much imbibing and music (laughs) making, but of a local specialty, which is super awesome. He also really liked a wine from Hungary, it's from central Hungary. The region is called Zexgard, and the specialty in Zexgard is a grape called Kadarka. Kadarka is used in, like, if people have seen the, like, cheap bull's blood that's out there on the market for 10 bucks, Kadarka Whoa. can be in that. But there's some natural versions as well. And supposedly, this wine inspired the Trout Quintet that he wrote, but there's... Oh. Nothing that supports that. It's There's some hypotheses out gotcha. there. But yeah, so Schubert loved some Schilscher, and he loved some Kadarka, apparently. Or wines from Kadarka blended or something, but wines of Sexard. Wow. Zexard. He also loved Beethoven a lot. And you, you, I think you mentioned his birth and death dates. Did you mention Schubert's birth and death dates in 1797 to 1828? Mm-hmm. So if you were taking notes from earlier, Beethoven died in 1827, Schubert 1828. But Schubert, you know, born almost 30 years after Beethoven. So Schubert did not live very long, still managed to write about 1,500 pieces of music, which is insane, More than 600 of that, or probably far more than 600, but at least 600-something were just leader, German leader, which is songs. So just singer with piano or something. And during his lifetime, he was mostly known for that, but he also wrote a ton of keyboard music. He wrote a lot of piano sonatas like Beethoven did, not as many as Beethoven did, but a, a fair amount. He wrote nine symphonies, just like Beethoven did. 
Uh, he wrote a lot of string quartets. And so, yeah, he was prolific, prolific composer. But He liked to drink a lot, too. Beethoven liked to drink more than anybody talks about. He like they think he might have died of cirrhosis. Oh, I was talking about Schubert. Yeah, but I was talking oh, about yeah. Beethoven. Beethoven. Not, like Schubert liked to drink a lot. So did Beethoven. Yep. But people don't really mention that much, and there's right. a lot of theories of what Beethoven died from because obviously mm-hmm. now that's quite hard to prove. Yeah. But when they did some analysis on his liver, mm-hmm. however many years ago, they were like, he could have died of syphilis. He could have died of a couple other things. But man, that liver was not looking pretty. And so there is a theory out there that he could have died mm-hmm. of cirrhosis, which, I yeah. mean, like, listen how brilliant he was. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, because I know that uh, the theory is that Schubert died of syphilis. So Schubert did love his Beethoven. And as I was looking for music to choose from Schubert, I settled on, I decided I wanted to play something. He wrote a lot of music for... Uh, more than one piano at a time. So either one piano with four hands on it, so two people sitting in a piano playing together, maybe two pianos with two people sitting on it. So Talk uh, about hectic. Yeah, and and those textures can get a little piano-y. You know what I mean? It can get a little uh, thick at times. Schubert was really good at it, and he wrote many beautiful examples, and, and one of them is this duet that he wrote for pianos, and... Uh, it's just absolutely beautiful. And it's also a rondo, which is what we were talking about earlier with that Beethoven. It's called that, right? Grand Rondo? Yep, Grand Rondo. It's spelt a little differently, but... In A, yep. I think the French spelling is common with this Mm -hmm. piece. But um, Rondo, again, means that, you know, whatever material you hear at the opening keeps coming back after new material is introduced. So sometimes I use fruit to describe a rondo. So if you have an apple then a banana, then you have another apple, then you have cherries, then you go back to the apple, mm. then you have an orange. You keep coming back to the apple after, see what I mean? Or colors like- I'd be like, you have Merlot, and then you have Cabernet, yeah. and then you have Merlot, and then you go to Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, okay, then but you I got back you. back to your Merlot. Yep. I got you. Yep, so that's how that goes. And um, in reading about this particular Grand Rondo, I promise I'm getting to the point, I stumbled across a uh, uh, little description of the piece- on the Hyperion website. Hyperion is a classical music record label that's quite popular and uh, been around for a long, long time. And on one of their recordings of this piece, they include a description that this piece was inspired by that second movement of that Beethoven piano sonata that we heard. That's the only place I found this reference. I couldn't find reference to Schubert you know, using that as inspiration. But the things that they were saying uh, do make perfect sense. It's not the same melody, of course, but there are a lot of similarities and and there are some very specific similarities too. So we'll get to one of those specific similarities in a minute, but let's just go ahead and listen to the opening of this uh, Grand Rondo from Schubert. Again, it kind of keeps coming back in various ways, mm-hmm. and 
This piece is a little bit longer than uh, Beethoven's Rondo, but um, yeah, it's just, it's really beautiful. So how does it compare? Because when I, when I, you told me specifically, you said, listen to the two of them, make sure you kind of back and forth. And I was like, wow. I mean, they're obviously night and day, but they're more like night and early evening. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You, you can easily hear similarities between the two. This article on this website, and I'll link to it because I just found it so so fascinating. Um, they talk about how even the contour of the melody is the same. It's not in the same key. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not the same melody, but the contour is similar. And then there's this really great little move that Beethoven does toward the end of his second movement in his piano sonata, where he takes that melody, which happens in the right hand, in the, in the upper voice, right? And he plays it in, the, in a lower voice. And it's very beautiful. And Schubert does the same thing. Do you want to hear it in yeah, both? Please, yeah, please. Let's do it. So let's hear Beethoven do it first, okay? So in order to do that, we'll listen to the melody at the beginning so you can get that in your ear. And then I'll play you the part where it's in the lower okay. voice. And then in this particular recording of the Richard Good, it happens at about five minutes, 12 seconds then, that it comes back in the lower voice. So here you go. just have to hear the Schubert doing the same thing. I shouldn't say the Schubert. I meant the Schubert. But then I wanted to say the Schubert doing the same thing, and it kind of came out as the Schubert doing the same (laughs) thing. The Schubert. Yeah, no, it's amazing here. So again, different melody. So let's get the, the Schubert melody in your ear. So this is how Schubert's Grand Rondo starts. And in this recording with Maria Joao Perez, it happens at about eight minutes in the Schubert that he brings that melody back into the tenor voice. AKA left hand. It's just, it's a very simple thing. But but it's it's just a beautiful little nod, I think. I, I, I mean, I think it's lovely. I love the nod. And this is this is one of the reasons why I love this podcast so much is because I think people that like classical music but are intimidated by classical music, you know, a lot of people listen to music, obviously, to just, like, background. They're yeah. cooking or cleaning or driving or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there are people that actively listen to music. And I think with classical music, if you don't come from a classical background, it's really hard to sort of even start aiming at the dartboard of what to listen for. Yeah. And so this is a really simple way 
to listen to this podcast and hear things like that to be like, wow, I wonder if that's anywhere else in music or to just listen to these 17 times. And all of a sudden you're like hanging out with your homies and they're talking and you're like, <laughs> you're like humming it because it's so catchy and beautiful. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. To piggyback off of Schubert yes. and Schubert liking wines from Sexard, we also know that Liszt really loved those wines as well. He actually sent uh, Pope Pius IX some wine from Sexard. He also wrote the Sexard Mass after that region, and part of that was the the love of the region, of course, but the love of those wines as well. And he's from Hungary. Yeah, yep. of course, but he could have had the Tokai Mass. Yeah, exactly. Or he You're could totally have had, right. <laughs> you know, he could have had the Egri Mass, and he didn't. He specifically had the Sexard, and we know he liked the wines from there. He also loved cognac, and he (laughs) had, like, I guess really probably what I've heard. Obviously, I don't know if this is true because I've read it in a few different sites, that he had, like, this cigar habit and, like, a bad breath situation because of cigars. So you have, like, if you're having cigars and – naggy, like at the time, probably nappy Hungarian red wine and like cognac. Oh, imagine making out with that dude. I mean, he's not a bad looking dude. <laughs> no, he was like, handsome, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's Crazy. just a little tidbit. Okay, where should we go next? Rossini? Should we Rossini? Yes. I'm kind of in love with Rossini these we've, days. We've talked about him a lot. Well, I mean, that's not why I'm in love with him. And yeah. But I just, I wish, not for many reasons, because living as a female in like the 1800s would have sucked for the most part. But being a homie of Rossini's and being a female, he was probably like, dope, let's let's hang out and drink wine together and smoke my cigars, I don't care, whatever. He loved to eat and drink and loved to perform music and make music and whatever, which is like, that's I want a T-shirt that says, that's all I like to do. (laughs) Let's do those things. (laughs) It's not all I like to do. I like to hike too, but whatever. That just makes up for all those other things. He loved... Macaroni, and macaroni with, we talked about Beethoven and his love of macaroni, mm-hmm. but with something that seems like a cured ham, like it's not prosciutto, but it's okay. some sort of ham that's been cured coming from the pork, the pig yeah. situation. He loved dry Madeira with that, which <laughs> is, sounds amazing because it's, dry Madeira is great with really savory foods like Parmesan Mm. and cheese. So if he did have Parmesan on there, but like cured ham and macaroni, like, yes, please. He also loved Bordeaux with fish. Now, (laughs) it was likely red Bordeaux because that was what was, I mean, there was white Bordeaux too, but red Bordeaux is what was fashionable during this time. And even though the 1855 classification of Bordeaux, there are white wines on those lists that happened at that time. So lists, lists, no pun intended. <laughs> anyway, what's funny is, first of all, Bordeaux and fish sounds like an awful pairing, but whatever. You have like really heavy tannic red wine yeah. with some like, but hey, teach their own. Yeah. Rossini was a rotund dude. In 1864, Baron de Rothschild one of the highfalutin estates in the area. Yeah. And still some of the most expensive wine in France, if not the world, sends Rossini, he knows Rossini likes to eat and drink. He sends Rossini a case of grapes from his prized vineyard. Case of bottles or grapes? Grapes. Whoa. And Rossini's 
writes back and says, thank you so much, but I quote, however, I am not accustomed to taking my wine in pill form, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) And so (laughs) the owner, Baron de Rothschild, he was like, all right. Send him quickly. Oh, my a, God. I've heard it was a barrel of wine. I don't know if it was a barrel or if it was, like, how they did it in those days. It was because wine was yeah. definitely bottled during those times. Yeah. But he quickly read that and sent Rossini <laughs> some bottled wine <laughs> or some wine, which is, like, so dope. I don't take my wine in pill form. That has Thank to you, be, however. Yeah. The <laughs> new shirt. He also loved, he was very astute in his pairings in some ways because- Rossini. Yeah, as we talked about, like sweets, a lot of people do sweet wines. It's like, why would you do that? And with cheeses, people put that at the beginning of the meal and want like, Mm -hmm. no, don't do that. And like, you have red wine with your cheese, gross. He would love sweets or cheese at the end of a meal, which that's when you eat cheese because it's a digestive, which is like super awesome because it's so enzymatic. It helps break down things in your stomach and then you- are happy down there. He would love champagne with his sweets and with his cheese because depending on the style of a champagne, it would pair really well. I was like, yeah, I like this guy. <laughs> and if you want to know more, I will at, when we Instagram, Slotovino Wine and Other Stories and Ludwig Dashvan because they have a lot of really cool anecdotes that are deeper than what we're talking about today. Cool. Super cool. So... Well, let's let's just listen to some Rossini. Yes, please. Yeah. Let's do that. So It'll inspire me to eat foie gras with truffles, stuffed turkey, and all those things later. <laughs> this is actually maybe not by Rossini, to be honest. But the story is fun that in the late 90s, someone thinks they found a bassoon concerto that maybe Rossini wrote in a library somewhere in Italy. Naples, maybe? Can't remember. Hmm. And it's possibly by Rossini. I just don't know. I, I'm not... I'm, I, first thought it, of all, I thought it was attributed to him 100%, but they don't know who was either... Who paid for it to be done or who it was dedicated to or something like that is what I thought. It was no, we little, know who he wrote it for. If he wrote it, we know who he wrote it for uh, was a man named Nazareno Gatti who was a bassoonist of the day, a very virtuosic bassoonist. Yes, you had me at bassoon. And the things that I find strange about it is, first of all, it's just ridiculously hard. And it just seems a little weird that he would write something like that because the other solo instrumental works that he wrote just aren't anywhere near that technically difficult for that specific instrument. Okay. Uh, Also, considering the modern bassoon is, as you'll recall, very different, not very different, but different than the bassoon of 1845 and had fewer keys, and so that would make it even harder to play back then. So who really knows? But it does it sound like Rossini? Yeah, it sounds like Rossini. You know, I mean, I don't know. But let's listen to it because it's bassoon and it's awesome. Let's listen to a little bit of the last movement because it's insane. It is insane. Also, I'll just remind you that a concerto means that there's a solo instrument with an orchestra. So bassoon concerto, bassoon standing in front of an orchestra. And this concerto, whether it was written by Rossini or not, is a really beautiful example of a 
uh, concerto from that era. Just it, the first movement has this lengthy orchestral introduction that the bassoon doesn't even play until like two minutes in, and then the bassoon comes in, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's very traditional in that aspect. If you want to know what does a concerto typically sound like from maybe 1780 through the 1850s, this is a great example of that. So here you go. This is the last movement of the bassoon concerto, possibly written by Rossini in 1845. Yes. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> if I'm ever going to get in a car accident, it's going to be to probably this movement. <laughs> just like driving with a glaze over look in, in my eyes with like just a smile on my face. So amazing. This movement also, by the way, is a rondo. So we've heard three rondos now today. So again, this melody we're hearing is going to come back over and over and over again. But now we're going to go somewhere different for a minute. Look, here we are. We're in a different key too, momentarily. Soon get it. <laughs> the clarinet and the flute are like la 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 la. <laughs> Emily's probably like, can we? We can go on now. And I'm like, no, oh, I love it. No, I love it. so good. Thank you it's for including that. Amazing. It's so great. I knew you'd get a kick out of that. Well, po possible Rossini. Oh, yeah. We could all just say most likely because it makes me happy to think about him like having fish in Bordeaux and listening to that. Mm -hmm. The last person that I'm going to talk about is one of your favorites. Yeah. Johann Sebastian Bach. Or today. I was driving and I know the proper way to pronounce it's Bach. Yeah. But it's annoying to hear that on NPR seven times when they're talking about, because I don't, like if I were to be like, yeah, and I'm, t you know, talking about Ribera del Duero, I don't go Ribera del Duero. You always do. I don't go Ribera del Duero, I go Ribera no, del Duero. No, you say Bach. You don't say Bach. Well, but they kind of, they kind of were like Bach. <laughs> I'm just saying, you're a stickler for anything lat Latin pronunciation. It's true. Okay, yeah. so let's pronounce it right. Johann Sebastian Bach. Yeah, you just say Bach. It's just, just Bach. Okay. You get used to it. All right. 1685 to 1750. And what's cool about this dude is I love how into coffee he was. Yes. He, like, loved coffee. He was a connoisseur of coffee. He had coffee tools. And if I may make a shout-out to North Coffee Works up in here in Minneapolis, yeah, I was all playing with my coffee tools today. With some samples that they sent me yeah. to taste. Mm -hmm. They're Kenyan, Ethiopia. Mwah, mwah. Love it. Yeah. Love me some African coffee. Love me some Burundi. Yes. Mm. Anyway. He wrote a cantata about coffee. 
Yes, he did. Yeah. And it's, so yeah, so we love that he loved coffee. It's fun to find love. out, obviously, about what people were drinking alcohol-wise, yeah. but that's really cool, too. And in his Leipzig apartment, he had two rooms to store his wine, and he often asked to be paid in wine instead of money. Yes. Yes. He loved wines from the Rhine. He, we know that he liked to taste a lot of wines. He was a little bit kind of, quote-unquote, promiscuous like I am in his wine drinking. He would buy wines from around Europe, but we know that he had a preference for Rhine wines. And it was most likely, of course, because he was from around that area. It was the closest to where he was from. But mm. yeah, I don't know. Rhine Amazing. wines, have rooms for it, have coffee tools. Yes. Yes. Bach, let's do that. Well, uh, let's go out on the heels of some Bach then. Uh, we'll listen to a movement from one of his English suites. He wrote six keyboard suites called English suites. He also wrote six keyboard suites called French suites. They're all Baroque dance suites. It was very common in the Baroque era to collect suites, make little suites. So a piece of music that has multiple movements in it. And they were all from Baroque dances. So the courant or the allemande or the sarabande or the jig, jig. Which uh, comes from the English jig, yeah. of all things, which is like awesome. Yeah. For those of you who like listen to folk music, like jigs, yeah. the jig comes from the jig. They also, um, the English suites all had preludes. So before the dances start off, there's a little just a keyboard kind of, um, get your drink on before you get out yeah. on the dance floor. Here's the opening of the English suite number four, the uh, F major English suite. And this is played by a man named Glenn Gould. And we'll, we'll talk about Glenn Gould someday because he was quite the character and quite a story, quite a musician and uh, eccentric and interesting stories abound with Glenn Gould. And so. just to specify too that this was Glenn Gould, obviously a genius piano player. This was written for harpsichord, correct? Or, yep. or clav clavichord or something? Just it was not written for piano. Let's, uh, okay. easy to say. But, the, yeah. but Glenn Gould Pianist. played the piano. Yep, and um, Glenn Gould played Bach in a very um, distinct way, a very uh, individual way. metronomic mm -hmm. thinking of the conversation I would have with Mr. Bach if I ever met him. Like, I'd bring him a Chemex from the future. <laughs> I'd be like, dude, you want to taste this coffee made out of this Chemex? He'd be like, do you want to have some rude-ass coffee made out of, like, Lord knows how they made it th in those days? Yeah. It was probably, like, some sort of filter that wasn't, like, a filter that we use. Probably or maybe cloth it was, like, or something. But, uh, you know, they had, I wonder if they had percolators back in those days. That I don't know. But, like, Dude, do you want to taste? Do you want to taste some Rhine wine from the future? This is what 2018 yeah. Rhine Hessen Riesling tastes like. 
the dude would be like, you want to taste it? Oh my God, it'd be so good. That's Now I've, I've never wanted to go back in time. Yeah. And now I know when I'd go back. 17... 13. Okay. I'd go back to when this was written. Ish, yeah. Yeah, 13, 14. And be like, dude. Chemex. I got a Chemex. <laughs> That's when I say, to scores and pours. To scores and pours. for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Joe Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. You'll also find a link there to our merch, which includes hoodies and tees. We're on Instagram at scores and pours. You can send us a direct message there. If you have any feedback or show ideas, we would love to hear from you at scores and pours. And remember, please rate us wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora. We're on Pandora now. We're on Pandora now. And consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Say hi, Sam. Uh, What? I just love when Sam says hi on other podcasts. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. June. June. Little kitty.